Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 6, Episode 14, Mannequin 3, The Reckoning, written by Eric Charmello and Nicole Snyder. It is their second episode, and directed by Jeanot Swark. It is his first of five episodes, one each in the next five seasons. Here we go. The Haunted Kidney. We use this bizarre metaphor to deal with Sam's resurfacing hell trauma and his guilt over what he did while soulless, as well as Dean's apparently finally closing the book on any chance of a white picket fence life with Lisa and Ben, even though we thought that was already done episodes and episodes ago, but nope, they're going to drag this out to flog us with it, and Dean. And I guess the best thing I can say about this one is that it's going to go so fast that I was actually able to make time during my vacation week to record it, mostly just to get it entirely out of the way. So if this one lacks the usual flow, it's probably because I recorded it in little bursts when I had 10 free and relatively quiet minutes during the week. I think that's about the level of attention to detail this episode actually merits from us, though. So I'm rolling with it. To the then segment. We get flashbacks to Dean earlier in the season. Sam and Bobby both telling him, this is as close to happiness as I've ever seen a hunter get. Like, hunters don't get real happiness, they just get close. And soulless Sam telling Dean that, you know, he was building something with them and Sam didn't want to get in the way of that. And then how it all fell apart when Dean went there when he was vampirized and didn't explain any of that to Lisa and Ben and just scared the crap out of them and basically got kicked out of their lives over it. And then we get a quick refresher on Sam, his soullessness, how he got that way, what death did to fix it, the big wall inside Sam's head that he was ordered not to scratch, and then the results of him scratching it last week. Ending on the final shot of last week's episode, and Sam burning in hell inside his own mind. Demon baby Spork, what do you want? Spork's going to contribute to this episode. Trust me, this is going to be the best part of the whole episode. And then we come to now. We pick up right where we left off. Dean on the floor, crouched over Sam's apparently unconscious body, urging him to wake up. And after a minute or two, Sam finally opens his eyes and takes a gasping breath, and you see a little ring of flames, like, burn out inside his eye. We then cut to Great Falls Junior College in Patterson, New Jersey, and a janitor after hours cleaning up a science lab room, getting stared at by a creepy, skinless anatomy dummy. When we cut back, the anatomy dummy has climbed free of its hook. And because I'm not belaboring this shit, the anatomy dummy kills the guy. And title card. The morning after they leave Rhode Island, Sam's still suffering the after effects of his little flashback to hell. Dean brings him coffee and breakfast and a jar of unnamed pills, tells Sam that they are effective when he asks what they are. And Sam declines. Dean is just like, okay, whatever, man, suit yourself. I can understand Sam not wanting to medicate himself when he is unsure of what is even happening inside of his own brain. They rehash what happened to Sam. Dean tells him he was only out for two or three minutes, but to Sam, it felt like a week. 
Sam doesn't really want to talk about it. He's fine now, so he wants to avoid explaining to Dean what happened to him. But Dean knows it was hell. And he warns Sam again. You've got to be careful. You could have died. And Sam brushes that off. Dean is trying to use this as proof of his original concept that Sam should just avoid thinking or referencing or trying to discover anything from his past. Anything during that horrible year, Dean wants to just let it stay buried because at least that way Sam gets to remain upright and continue doing more good in the world. Whatever bad things he may have done that year, he can't really atone for them. Dean advises Sam to shove it down and let it come out in spurts of violence and alcoholism. And Sam's like, oh yeah, that sounds healthy. Dean's like, it works for me. And he's, I think, not being entirely facetious there. I think that is his main coping method for how he deals with his memories of 40 years of being in hell himself. Sam's not the only one who carries burdens like this. But Dean's point is that Sam has to find some way to cope with never being able to find out the terrible things he did or make any amends for it. The only amends they can really make is going forward, that he's not that soulless dickbag anymore, and they can do good things for people now. And Sam's just going to have to let that be enough, because Dean understands that he himself can't take back years of being a torturer in hell. He can't undo any of those things. He can't make any of that better. It is what it is. It's in his past, and he is choosing to move forward. Clean slate, which is a concept we'll be readdressing again in a couple weeks more. So I just wanted to put that out there because that is something that will come up again in two more episodes. Dean tries his best to move on with Sam here, though. And he pulls out a newspaper with an article about the janitor murdered in the lab that we saw in the cold open. Could be a case for them to look into, and something that is not related to Sam's past. We also get reminded that Sam has missed out on a year plus of pop culture. Dean's like, oh yeah, it's in Patterson, New Jersey. Maybe we'll have a Snooky sighting. And Sam's like, what's a Snooky? You'll know who she is in a couple more seasons when she's playing a crossroads demon. (laughs) Yeah. Back at the lab, Dean goes right over to that anatomy dummy. He thinks it's amazing. He just starts pulling pieces off of it, like grabs a lung and grabs the heart, gives it to Sam. Be my Valentine. Since this episode did originally air on February 18th, it's the closest episode to Valentine's Day that year. Dean just juggles the heart around and makes jokes. As the camera zooms in on the dummy's eyes, Dean asks Sam if he smells sulfur, and Sam's like, yeah, we're in a science lab. That's a smell that's not uncommon here. Dean's phone rings, and Sam asks who it is. Dean takes a few steps away, and it's Lisa. And he rejects the call, apparently. He's been rejecting multiple calls from her lately. We get a quick flash of the home screen on Dean's phone before he shuts it off, and it's a photo of his own feet in bed, In the motel room from Clap Your Hands If You Believe. So a few episodes back, Jensen was probably playing with the phone in bed and took a picture of his own feet against the forest wallpaper. And he set that as his phone's background screen. So it's canon that Dean does that. And I never even noticed it. (laughs) 
And, and then wrote it as a key feature of Dean's in, in an entire series of fic I wrote. So, so I always find that little tiny flash of screen very validating personally. And honestly, that might be the most redeeming quality of this entire episode. It has nothing to do with the episode at all. Sam has apparently been encouraging Dean to at least talk to Lisa, see what she wants, and Dean's like, uh, no. Sam pulls out the EMF meter, and apparently that weird anatomy dummy is giving off major EMF. And then Dean spots a security camera, so they watch security footage to see what happened. Unfortunately, the screen completely glitches out at the moment of the attack. Sam and Dean stop somewhere else, and Dean is sitting in the car waiting for him and gets another message from Lisa. He quickly puts his phone away before Sam can chastise him about it. Sam had interviewed the janitor's girlfriend. Apparently he was a stand-up guy, no record, no signs of anything weird in his life. Dean had interviewed the people at the college. There was nothing weird about the land or the building or any tragedies that had taken place there. So they've got nothing. We cut to a factory later that night. Looks like a garment factory. There's sewing machines and modeling dummies everywhere. And a security guard roaming the place. And you can already guess what's going to happen here. Basically the same thing that happened to the janitor at the college. He's murdered by mannequins. The next morning, Sam and Dean are checking out the crime scene as the police are clearing things up with the body. And an entire bin full of mannequin parts goes wild on the EMF. And Sam puts it together. Maybe the anatomy dummy at the lab and the mannequins here. And Dean's like, you're joking. You're not joking. Oh boy. See, even Dean recognizes that this is stupid. Dean's willing to give Sam's argument credence for now. But how did a ghost hop from the college to this factory. They don't usually travel this far. They're usually tied to a location. Sam and Dean can't find any dirt on the security guard, just like they couldn't on the janitor. Sam and Dean turn to research to see if anything connects those two locations, and they find something. A girl who went missing more than a year ago, Rose Brown, disappeared, and she had worked at that factory. And she is survived by her sister, Isabel. Dean's like, yeah, 50 bucks, it's a vengeful spirit. As they're packing up to head out to talk to the sister, Dean's phone rings again, and it's Lisa again. And Sam demands that he answer it. Because he dealt with his baggage from the past year, it's Dean's turn now. But Dean now knows it's not Lisa, it's Ben who's been trying to call him. Dean tells Ben to put Lisa on the phone. Ben's like, no, she's doing really bad. She's locked her door and she barely gets out of bed. It's really scary and I don't know what to do. Dean tells him he'll call him back in five minutes. Dean explains to Sam what's going on and Sam's encouraging him to go. And Dean's like, I can't just leave. We're in the middle of a case. Sam insists that he can handle it, that Dean has to go take care of his business. So Dean takes off for Lisa's while Sam's left to interview the sister. Their parents died when they were little, so all they had really was each other. Sound familiar. She was always looking out for her sister because she was very kind and sweet, but very shy and awkward, and people tended to make fun of her for it. And her sister's been defending her her whole life. 
Sam assures her that her sister probably definitely appreciated it because, I mean, Sam appreciates what Dean does for him. And I think that was his quiet way of, you know, acknowledging that even though Dean wasn't there to hear it. But the sister gets a little bit choked up and talks about how her sister did more for her than anyone ever could. And we'll find out later that that was giving her a kidney. But in the meantime, Sam doesn't know that and he's not going to pry into this woman's pain. He looks through a family album. One of the photos is of the factory Christmas party because everybody in town apparently works there. And Sam notices the two dead guys, the janitor from the college and the security guard from the factory, are arm in arm in the photograph like they were buddies. The janitor had previously worked there but then quit shortly after Rose disappeared. Sam is informing Dean as Dean stops for coffee on his way to Lisa's. That still doesn't explain how the ghost got to the college. Sam interviews a bunch of employees at the factory that all seem to go uneventfully until he gets to one guy, who is basically the shiftiest dude he's ever interviewed. Sam asks the guy why he seems so nervous. And the guy's like, well, those guys that died, they were my friends. Of course I'm upset. Sam's like, I didn't say you looked upset. I said you looked nervous. Sam hands him a business card and tells him to be in touch if he thinks of anything. And I think Sam really knows this guy is a person of interest. We cut to Dean arriving at Lisa's house, ringing the doorbell multiple times. And Lisa comes down the stairs, all dressed up glitzy and glamorously, getting ready for a date. She's like, Dean, what are you doing here? And Dean immediately figures it out that Ben Parent trapped them because Lisa's going on a date. She invites Dean in to get this all cleared up with Ben. They start arguing. Lisa's like, I called you six times. And Dean's like, yeah, and I almost called you back like a hundred. She's implying that she tried to call him back after their disastrous phone call where she had told him to stay out of their lives, to apologize, to talk to him, to just clear the air, anything. And Dean just couldn't bring himself to do it. He's like, no, I'm going to cause destruction in these people's lives. I'm staying out. Look, when Ben called, I dropped everything and came here because I thought you you guys were in trouble. And, you know, the proof that I still care. And Lisa argues that, you know, they're not asking him to. And Dean's like, well, then ask me for something. And then Ben comes wandering in. And in unison, Lisa and Dean both tell him to go to his room. Lisa tells Dean that she can't ask for something. She knows what she wants, but she also knows she can't have it. She wants Dean to be there full time, to go back to what they had during that year that he lived there and didn't know Sam was alive and was completely out of hunting. She knows that Dean will never quit hunting for her and Ben. And that line, the one thing I want, the only thing I can't have. Well, isn't that what Cass tells Dean right at the very end? The thing is, whatever Cass wanted, Dean would have given it to him. And yeah, he's not going to give that to Lisa. That's just not how this works. Lisa can't take not knowing what's going on with Dean. She's like, my phone rings and I think tiny chance it's you. Big chance it's Sam telling me you're dead. Lisa tells him that he can't keep doing this. 
She just gets to a point where she's okay and ready to move on with her life and convinced that she's never going to see Dean again. And then, oops, he shows up at her door again and opens the wound all over again. Lisa is trying to get over him and she asks Dean what he wants from them. And honestly, he just wants them to live their best lives. And from his reaction, I don't know that anyone has ever even asked that of Dean. What do you want from us? Like, Dean holds all the cards here. He can make a choice right now and stay with them forever, and they would be perfectly happy with that. But he can't make that choice. He knows he can't make that choice, and he just keeps ripping into their lives over and over again. Back at the factory, the squirrely guy is getting off of his shift. The whole place is shut down. He's on the phone with somebody who is he's talking to about freaking out about the feds being there. When he clicks his phone shut, blood drops appear on his hand, his forehead's bleeding just like the first two guys. He runs into the bathroom to look at his forehead in the mirror and is cornered by a mannequin, but a hand reaches out and grabs him. It's Sam, who puts him in a little office room, sprinkles salt along the windows and doors, and gets really pissy with the guy with very good reason. He hands the guy a rag, continues salting the place, and tells the guy, it's a ghost trying to kill you for being a dick. You're lucky you were the most suspicious interview of all time. I don't have time for the whole big speech here, because the ghost wants to kill you now. But brass tacks, Rose is back, and the guy's like, that's crazy. Sam tells him the only way for him to survive this is to tell him what they did to Rose. The guy at least believes enough what's going on to finally relent. He tells Sam it started off as a stupid joke. Their little group of friends convinced Rose that she had a secret admirer. They left her notes and flowers and set up a secret date with her. They just thought she was kind of pathetic and they wanted to have a good laugh at her expense. So she shows up to the apartment and she thinks it's her secret date but it's actually just a dummy in a suit. And all the guys jump out and laugh at her. She's hurt and ashamed and humiliated and angry. And she tries to leave, but the janitor guy grabs her arm and's like, oh, you can take a joke, right? And she tries to pull herself free, slips and falls and smashes against the corner of a coffee table and ends up with the same cut that the two dead guys and now our third guy, have appeared over their foreheads. The squirrely guy in the cap tried to call the police to report it because it was an accident. But the janitor guy's like, no, we lured her here. We tricked her. That's involuntary manslaughter. At least could be worse. But regardless, we're to blame for this. We've got to cover it up. So they took her out in the woods, buried her in a shallow grave, and tried to pretend like they knew nothing. And he regrets it now. He wishes he could take it all back, but he still did it. Sam calls him out, though. He's like, look me in the eyes and tell me none of that. The responsibility for her death is on you and the guy can't. And Sam's like, but that doesn't mean you deserve to die either. The guy tells Sam where they buried the girl and he wants to come with him. And Sam's like, no, you've got to stay inside the salt line until I tell you it's all clear. He's going to go burn the bones. And the guy's like, what, I got to stay here all night? And Sam's like, yeah, consider it getting off easy. 
So the dude's stuck in the break room next to the ice-cold soda machine. Back at Lisa's, Dean goes in to talk to Ben. They have a good long talk, starting with why Ben called him there. Dean's like, a date's not an emergency. And Ben's like, it's a third date, though. I know what that means. And Ben tries his, like, 11-year-old kid logic on Dean. He's like, why can't you just apologize and come home? And Dean's like, I can't. And Ben's like, can't or won't. And Dean's like, both. It's like, what, you hate mom now? And Dean's like, what? No. And then Ben says, okay, so then it's me. Whatever I did, I'm sorry. And it's like, sometimes, Ben, it's not just that simple. Dean's like, just because you love somebody doesn't mean you get to stick around and screw up their lives. Ben is worried that Dean thinks that something might follow him home. And Dean's like, no, but I think doing my job turns me into somebody who can't sit at your table. That if he sticks around, Ben will end up just like him. Ben thinks that's not a bad thing to be. And Dean's like, no, you don't want to be me. And Ben is very disappointed and angry with Dean, because the way he sees it is Dean is walking out on his family. And this is a huge letdown to Ben. But Dean can't let these people be his family. He can't ruin their lives. Because Lisa might be able to let go and move on with her life, but Dean's not sure that Ben really can. And I think he's disturbed and a little horrified thinking that Ben's going to grow up and either look for him again or turn to hunting. And I guarantee you, this is why he will eventually choose to wipe Lisa and Ben's memories of him. It's not for their protection against monsters that may come after them. It's for their protection at ever being able to find him again, to remember anything about the world of hunting even exists. If they find it again on their own, so be it. But it's not going to be because of him. He will not be the reason that their lives are ruined. Back in New Jersey, Sam finds the grave, salts and burns the bones, and then calls the guy back and tells him that it's over that the ghost is gone, that he should be okay now. And yeah, Sam really does think it's over. Meanwhile, Dean is driving back to town, and we get a little montage of his life with Lisa and Ben, because he has now officially left them behind. We cut back to New Jersey, and to a bar called McOwen's, with El Sol and Schultz signs in the window, And we see the dead girl's sister going into the pub with a few friends. And then the squirrely guy from the factory heading to an apartment right above the bar. Love Hurts is playing. And the beers, El Sol, something is definitely not as it seems here. And Schultz, the beer of death and debt. Debts being repaid, death incoming. In his apartment, the guy calls out, sweetie, hun, We gotta go, and then we look over to who he's talking to, and it's a real doll. It's not even a person. As he's telling this doll that he loves her, takes her hand even, her head turns, and he's spooked because it's not supposed to do that. And the next morning, he's found dead on a floor, strangled with the pink sash that was part of the real doll's pajim jams. 
Sam walks into the crime scene, sees the real doll sitting there, and immediately calls Dean. They did not solve this case yet. Sam goes back to the sister's house to see if there's anything that he missed, any of her possessions that she might have attached herself to. As Sam's digging through the tiny box of things that belong to the sister, he notices a stack of chemistry books on the table. It's like, ask the sister, are these yours? Are you in school? And she's like, yeah, over at Great Falls, right where we saw the first killing take place. So she was at the chem lab and the factory that week. And yes, she did happen to stop by a bar called McOwen's the previous night. And Sam puts it together in an enthusiastic way that sort of freaks this poor girl out. It's all about you. She's like, what, you think I killed these people? And Sam's like, no, 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 but I think you're at the center of it. What are you wearing of roses? A ring, her baby teeth and a locket, anything. The girl's like, you're scaring me. And yeah, legit. But Sam's like, no, please just humor me here. She stops and thinks for a second. She's like, wait, the only thing I have of roses is a part of me. It's my kidney. She gave it to me when we were kids. Sam asks her to come with him, and together they wait and meet up again with Dean as he rolls back into town later that night. Sam and Dean get out of their vehicles, and the poor girl just sits and waits in Sam's car. And Dean's like, it's not like we can actually just cut it out of her and burn it. She needs it to live. Like, what are we going to do about this? Sam thinks their best option is hoodoo. Dean's like, that's oh, a band-aid more than a cure. Sam's like, well, at least it buys us time to figure out how to deal with this, because we obviously can't just let this haunted kidney wander around being vengeful forever. It's just going to kill anyone that it has the slightest grudge with. So Dean's like, okay, Louisiana it is. And the girl comes over and's like, uh, voodoo? What? And their point about not being able to just let her keep the kidney is proven by the fact that as soon as she becomes suspicious of them, you guys aren't really feds, you hear baby's engines start. This woman's haunted kidney is about to try and take its revenge on them with yet another sex doll. Baby, the sex doll. Sam runs to protect the sister, puts her safely behind the other car as Baby chases Dean around the parking lot. Dean lures the car up against the building and then jumps out of the way right before the car crashes into his legs and poor Baby crashes into the wall. But at least the sex doll is stopped. Sam and Dean are okay, even if Dean's upset about what's happened to his car. And Isabel has a giant chunk of plate glass sticking out of her stomach and she's spitting up blood. She's not going to need her kidney much longer, at least. As she's dying, her sister's ghost appears to her, tells her she's sorry, and then burns up. Finally back at Bobby's, Dean's fixing baby back up after running her through a wall. Sam comes out and hands him a beer. But they're both clearly weirded out by that entire experience. What exactly did they do back there? That was not a win at all, in any way. Not just the case itself, but Dean's whole relationship with Lisa and Ben is just shattered as well. Dean had been wallowing in the fact that everywhere they go, they just make a mess. And Sam's like, that's not true. We do save lives sometimes. Dean expresses it as he's just tired of all the bad luck. Sam's like, well, first off, that's in the job description. And second, 
it's not all bad. I mean, look at me. I'm here. And Satan has left the building. That's definitely a win. And Dean's like, yeah, it's the little things. And for the very first time, Sam actually thanks Dean specifically for getting his soul back. Because yes, he does fully understand the importance of having his own soul now. Dean tries to brush it off as, yeah, well, it's done. You'd have done the same for me. And Sam's like, no, you need to hear this. I mean this. Please accept my thanks here. I need you to understand how appreciative I am. Sam sums it up as they're just going to put their heads down and keep swinging and we'll lose some, but hopefully we'll win more. And we've got to be okay with that because that's just our lives. And golly, Sam, I love you so much right now because yes, thank you. I've missed this Sam so much. And then Sam tells Dean, for what it's worth, I've got your back. And he says it in all earnestness. And for the first time this season, Dean 100% truly believes it. Because Sam had been saying it all season long, and Dean couldn't believe it, and it didn't sit right with him, but now it does. And that is where the episode ends. And this is definitely the shortest episode of this podcast I have ever recorded, because honestly, there is a lot of montage to this one and not a lot of substance. I think the only other thing I really want to say about this one that I don't want to slip away is this is the episode where Dean really officially breaks up with Lisa and Ben and his car gets smashed up in it, but just a little bit. I mean, like he's already finished fixing it by the time Sam brings the beer out. He's just putting on finishing touches and stuff. The car has sustained no material lasting damage. In the episode where things fall completely apart with Cass, the season finale episode, well, the car gets fucking totaled and it takes Dean weeks to get it put back together. It's like all he focuses on for the first episode of season seven, fixing that car because he's nothing he can do to help Cass. Cass is God then, right? All Dean can do is put the car back together. But now... I just think it's interesting that Lisa and Ben puts a little ding in him, but Cass, that's life ruining (laughs) and car ruining. And all of this low-key reflects the running theme throughout the series that Baby's state of being is paralleled to the state of Dean's soul. So I just think that's an interesting contrast to make. Anyway, just things to keep in mind for later on down the road this season. And in the meantime, you can always find me on Tumblr at Mittensmorgel or at SPN George. You can find me on Discord at Mittensmorgel. And now you can even find me on Blue Sky at Mittensmorgel. Shocker. Or you can email me at Mittensmorgel at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. Okay, I lied. There's one more thing I want to say about this episode. I just wonder why they felt compelled to do anything about this vengeful spirit other than trying to communicate with the woman whose kidney they were trying to unhaunt directly. Like, they could have talked to her about it, had her try and reach down and contact her sister's spirit that was haunting her body. You'd think 
getting her to convince her sister to let go could have been a route they should have taken, but rather than use their words, they went behind this woman's back, just sort of overriding her bodily autonomy and consent, and were just planned to, like, kidnap her and haul her to Louisiana to some hoodoo priest to put spells on her to block this spirit. And it's like, well, even that is just a band-aid, as you said. The real problem is the spirit. And you all have convinced spirits to just let go of their lives and move on and find some sort of closure for themselves. And it has worked as early as season two. I mean, look at Roadkill. That woman would have continued haunting that highway for eternity, but they were able to talk to her and reason with her and find the part of her that was still human enough to choose to let go. And yet the woman in this one, nah, she didn't even get a chance. She didn't even get to get a voice, even though she was probably the one who could have reached her sister and brought all of this to an end. But no, they decided that they were going to make decisions and just completely disregard her as a person involved in this. Other than, yeah, good that they were willing to work with her because they didn't think she deserved to die because of this situation. It's just frustrating that it's not even mentioned well we could get her to just into ghost counseling or whatever (laughs) to to work through her issues and hopefully be able to convince her sister to move on but whatever that wasn't even addressed and that's just darn disappointing and even with this little bumper that i added after the fact this is still the shortest episode i've ever done so i guess that's some sort of weird victory anyway have a good one everyone